0: Hey guys. Welcome to Always Bet on Black. I'm your host, Paula Glover. Today, I'm talking to Shannon Pierce. She's the Vice President of Growth and Chief External Affairs Officer for South Star Energy Services. I enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Today on Always Bet on Black, I am thrilled to have with me Miss Shannon Pierce, my friend, Um, Shannon serves as the Vice President of Growth and Chief External Affairs Officer for South Star Energy Services. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Paula. It's good to have you. It's great to be here with you. Oh, I'm so so excited to have you. you. Thank you. So I always like to start by learning a little bit about um, the people and allowing people who are listening to learn a little bit about the folks that I'm interviewing and talking to. And the thing that I always remember about you is that you always say, I'm just a country girl. So yeah. we're going to start with that. cause And I'm always like, I'm a city mouse. You're my country mouse. So right. tell me about being a country girl. What does that mean? Where are you from? How did you grow up? All that good stuff.
1: I grew up in Surrey County, Virginia, which is in Southeast Virginia, across the James River from Janestown Settlement. So very historical uh, area where I grew up. And the whole county at some people. My graduating class was 54 people. I grew up around cornfields and soybeans and cows and horses, um, all of it. And even today, we may have about 7,000 people in the whole county. Uh, There's um, still not a lot of development economically in yeah. that community, so still very rural. Um, we, my parents actually, don't have broadband yet. So when I go home to um, visit them, I have to have my hotspot and get in the right window uh, upstairs in the corner and find that just right spot. Um, So still very rural, um, still very country, but it was a great place to grow up. Um, Had, you know, this incredible village that helped raise me. And still today, I consider uh, them, the village that continues to help raise me, even into adulthood. Um, I always feel like I bring Surrey with me wherever I go. Um, this force of 6,000 people there who um, have just been encouraging and supportive of me um, and my family um, since I was very young um, until this day. So
0: I wanna I want to ask you about that and de- dig a little bit deeper. When you say you bring Surrey with you, What does that look like right what is what is that for
1: you in terms of how you bring that with you well first it's just a whole wonderful feeling i have knowing that no matter where i go there this group of folks who are back home who are um cheering for me praying for me just so very proud of me um and continue to lift me up as I continue my journey, uh, no matter how far I am away from home, I feel like I'm still connected um, to home and I bring home with me. I bring all the words of encouragement that comes through my parents. When they say, you know, sister so-and-so was asking about you the other day and wanted to know how you were doing. Uh, That just really um, has been so meaningful for me um, throughout um, my adult life. And it all started as a kid Um, you know, having dreams and having so many people who supported those dreams and planted seeds in me um, to give me the encouragement to know that despite coming from this small rural town, that there was no place I could go where I could, I wouldn't thrive because I know I have these folks back home. Yeah. So what did you
0: dream when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grow up, grew up?
1: Interesting story. In the fourth grade, my teacher wanted to do a play for our parent teacher association meeting. And the premise of the play was that this fourth grade class was going to come back at some period in the future to have a reunion. And it was called Miss Conley's fourth grade class reunion. And so she asked us to pick a career. And in the fourth grade, when I was looking, what do I want to do? Because at that point, I really hadn't thought about it. And my mom was an educator and has a passion for children and um, learning and inspiring and planting seeds into children, also worked really, really hard. And I looked at, you know, how hard she worked and how I always had an appreciation for how little teachers made though, like at a very young age. And my parents sacrificed so much for me, but I know it wasn't necessarily easy. My dad was a mechanic um, and again worked really, really hard. Um, but I looked at sort of how we were living, and then I looked at how my God were both lawyers mm. and where they lived and what they drove. They would go to these conferences and sometimes my mom and I would tag along. My mom would babysit their kids while they were at these meetings and they were just, um, had all this interaction with an engagement outside of Surrey that I saw. And at that moment I said, I wanna do that. And they were both lawyers. So in the fourth grade, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Didn't necessarily know what that meant. I just knew that it gave them some opportunities that were bigger than where we were in our little community. But they were also very well respected and pillars of our community and involved in the political scene of our community. and something resonated with me. At the age of, I guess I was about eight or nine, decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And at the time, I realized what that meant. And I would go with them to their office, see them work, see them with clients. Um, my grandmother became a judge, so I would go with her to court. And um, that just stuck with me. And that's what I did. And decided to go to law school um, after undergrad and kind of stuck with it, which is ironic because you now I haven't practiced law in about 10 years, mm-hmm. but um, that's that's how I got my start. That's cool though. You know, you don't meet a lot of people
0: who know what they wanna be in fourth grade, even if it's a guess, and then actually turn out to be exactly that. Like that's, I would say that's quite impressive. <laughs> I, mean, I ran through a whole bunch of things that I thought I wanted to be at fourth grade and what I'm doing now never popped up, I can could, I could promise. Um, so you go to law school, UVA, undergrad, and then UVA for law school. And you then end up at, was it McGuire Woods? Is that your first job out of law
1: school? It was my first job out of law school. I summered with them between my second and third year. Okay. Accepting an offer with them out of law school.
0: And are they headquartered in Richmond? Is that correct? Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Okay. They so are. why energy law? How did that happen? Well, I didn't choose it. Ah, I um, thought I would do real estate or corporate services, meaning M&A work or securities work. And when um, we were preparing to leave to go back to school, okay. we were asked by HR to rank your the departments. And mm-hmm. so I chose corporate services as my first choice. Real estate is my second choice. I didn't even know there was an energy and utilities group at the firm. didn't know what that was. And when I got my offer, and I basically put all my eggs in the McGuire woods basket because I like the firm, the size and um, location was just ideal for me. And I already had some pre-existing mentors there um, as well. And when I got my offer and they gave me the partner that I would be working for, it said energy and utilities. And so I called HR and said, I think you made a mistake because I'm thinking it's more like patent law. You need some kind of science degree, which I did not have. I was an English major for a very good reason. And I thought there was some kind of mistake. So I said, um, just want to make sure you meant to give me this assignment. And she said, oh, yeah, you don't need a special degree or anything. Um, just trust us. You're going to love the department. It's a great department. and You're going to love the work. And frankly, I had put all my eggs in one basket. So it was the only offer I had at the time. So I said, okay, I'll trust you. And so glad I did. It was just an exciting time. This was 2001, right before you started hearing about what's going on with Enron. Like all of the energy became this very visible yeah. um, industry in a way that it wasn't when I was growing up. You knew that you had the gas company, you knew you had the electric company, but you weren't, as I didn't hear a whole lot about the energy industry growing up. But all of a sudden, the energy industry became very public uh, because of what was going on at the time. And I loved the work, loved the team I was working with. And so I was very glad that um, HR um, encouraged me to stick with that assignment because um, I can't imagine now. Not doing this work and not being in this industry. Really,
0: so you you have you put all your eggs in the McGuire Woods basket, and it sounds like you now put all your eggs in the energy basket, so to speak.
1: Would you say that this is the industry for you? I yes, it is. It and one reason for that is because there's so many different layers of this industry, and so even though you know I started as a lawyer. I, you know, did legal, did federal work, did state work. I've done some electric work when I first started industry. I, um, you know, transitioned to regulatory affairs and government affairs. Went to operations for a couple years. Now I'm on the non-utilities energy industry. Mm-hmm. And so what I found is, even though I've stayed in the same industry, I've been able to grow and evolve and do a number of different things that keeps me energized. Um, to play on words um, so that it's never stale, it's ever evolving and dynamic and I'm still having a lot of fun.
0: Okay, so you've, you miss roll through a lot of different roles that you've had um, in this business in, right, a private firm, as well as obviously for companies, um, primarily, right, you start out at Atlantic, Atlantic
1: Gaslight Yes, I was with um, AGL, so I worked here at AGL Resources. And so at the time, I was the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission lawyer for AGL Resources, and got a chance to support utility side of the business, but also our non-utility side of the business um, at the FERC.
0: Okay. So what was your favorite job? With all these in operations and regulatory affairs at FERC. Um, now you're at South Star. Um, so you're doing energy services. What, what is it? What's a job that you like really, really enjoyed um, and why? And then did that surprise you? You know, what's a job that you enjoyed that you that surprised you that you were like, I, I never thought I was that.
1: So I'll say a couple of things. When I joined regulatory affairs around the company and tell people I had the best job in the company because I got to engage internally externally I got to really see how we make money and um, got to interact cross-functionally because you need, you know to in the company in order to make things work when you are developing your regulatory um, strategy and so I and I'm a people person so I got to you know meet so many people and then like I said externally I met you Paula, because of, my work in regulatory affairs. So it's um, it was all of those things that really you know, made me be a little braggadocious of I had the best job in the company. Yeah. Then I got the opportunity to go into operations. And I'm like, lo and behold, I found my new best job. Really? And I loved the operations side of the business primarily because of the people aspect of it. I had led small teams when I was in regulatory, but when I went to operations, now I was charged with leading a group of over 200 people. And there are frontline folks who are out there every day, you know, doing what they do for our customers, providing, you know, safe and reliable natural gas service to our customers. And that was for me like, whoa this is my sweet spot um, People, the people side of leadership and leading the folks who are on the front lines and going out in the field with my hard hat and you know my jeans and my 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 stiltoe boots and surprising people who thought that i was a city girl from atlanta not knowing i was this country girl from virginia and mm-hmm. way more comfortable in my toe boots and jeans than i am in any suit any day and um, so that, I just had a lot of fun uh, and it was only two years, but I saw a lot in those two years. We had a polar vortex, we had a couple mass outages. we had um, you know, union negotiations, and then we had COVID-19 and having to manage to do all of that. Um, and through all of those issues, um, I just got my, cause I get my energy from people and just to see how our folks go out every day and so dedicated and committed to our customers and our company and to each other was just amazing. And so glad I got that experience. And then now I'm in a great job now. And so I say all that to say with each experience, I am grateful that I'm finding that I'm having my new favorite experience. And so I never, I haven't yet had a job where I've said, "Gosh, I wish I hadn't done that." Um, it becomes my new best thing yeah. each time.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. I always, when I worked in regulatory affairs, I loved it. I still, I, I love, love, love that. And I'm always, um, people are surprised because it's, you know, it doesn't appear to be the most interesting job in the world, right? Sitting mm-hmm. through rate right cases, but I love sitting through rate right cases. I actually mm-hmm. really enjoy. Int- avoid like sitting there and listening and listening to arguments that lawyers like you could make and trying to figure out where commissions were gonna land and understanding the broader landscape so yeah what tell me this what's what's the job do you think that stretched you the most that you found most challenging
1: I would say that my transition into operations that really did stretch Mm -hmm. because I would always supported operations in my other roles, but it's a whole nother thing being in it. Yeah. And, um, again, I didn't, my educational background is not a technical one. And frankly, I spent a lot of time running away from STEM related subjects as a kid. I, I grew up um, with this sense that that wasn't for me. Like mm. science, technology, math, that, you know, I'm not that person. I'm the liberal arts, I'm the English major right. uh, person. And so the stretch for me was getting comfortable with what I could bring to the table uh, in operations with the experience that I had. Also, well, still being willing to be open to learn the technical side of the business and to ask the questions and not be a, you know, shy about asking the questions and being comfortable. Saying, look, I, I don't know what you mean by that. I'm here to lead, but I'm also here to learn. And really during my time at um, Gas, where I was in operations, I, my, my motto was I'm learning while I lead because I was brought here to lead, but I also need to learn. And I was, and I was brought here to learn. And um, the learning, became fun for me. And again, I I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I know how to ask questions. So why should I be shy in asking questions? And then going out with our folks in the field and them educating me about what they do and how they do and why this is important to do. Um, that was again an incredible experience for me. So it, it allowed me to stretch in a very positive way. Um, the way I think through issues and being um, okay with the technical side and stop boxing myself. You know, I'm the English major because now I'm the the English major who now knows the technical side of the business. And there was growth in that for me um, that I'm really glad that I um, had the opportunity um, to do that. So
0: I want to, Touch on so, something that you said is really interesting to me, where you, you're talking about learning while you lead. Um, but also, I would suggest that there is a level of um, confidence, slash, as well as kind of mixed with vulnerability when you're a leader who can tell those that you work with and for, who work for you or work with you, that you actually don't know and that you need them to teach me. And so, um, I wonder if you could share how you got comfortable even having that kind of conversation um, and feeling still confident in the role that you had, while at the same time being able to really be vulnerable and admit that I need you guys to teach me some stuff if I'm going to be really good at what I'm doing.
1: Well, I'll say one thing that's always um, important to me are the villages, like I talk about, that have raised me. And... I have members of those villages um, within the company who are my mentors, my coaches, my sponsors, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who said, you can do this. We have selected you for this role, one, so that you can bring your experience into the operation to help lead the operation but also so that you can learn and become a more well-rounded leader in this business. Because at the end of the day, you know, we often say in the gas business, you know, you got as close as you can get to the pipe. That's where you, that's where the learning is. And having others being confident in my ability to lead and learn um, in operations, that was, that was the first thing. And I even, you know, my boss, Melvin Williams, you know, made sure I understood that you know more about operations than you're giving yourself credit for. He's like, you've supported operations your entire career. And so that just kind of gave me a boost to say, okay, um, I don't have to um, shy away from the fact that I didn't quote grow up in operations uh, as a lot of people in operations do, but I can still, um, you know, bring my own experience to the table to help lead the operation and be comfortable in my learning.
0: Okay, you touched on something that um, a previous interviewee um, Barrett Hatcher shared, um, which was this idea that you have to trust that people see things in you that maybe you don't see in yourself. Would you say that's accurate for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. if someone had told me when I joined AGL Resources in 2004 that I would have president of operations, I would have said, Psh. not sure what tea leaves you're reading, but that hasn't been revealed to me. <laughs> um, and then you know, to transition down to the non-utility side of the business, again, those are things that I would never have contemplated. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think about it, I didn't even contemplate leaving legal. I thought I, I liked being a lawyer at the time and thought that's what I was going to do. And that's how you know, I was going to retire as such. But I had these wonderful folks who just would plant these seeds of, you might want to consider this, or have you thought about that? You, you know, they would remind me that I would talk about, you know, I have this long runway, um, uh, I plan to be working for a long time. So you have this time. So why don't you try some different things and having people do that for me and also having people to tell me that if you want to continue to grow and thrive in this business, these are the type of experiences we think you need to have, Um, that tremendous for me because I did not see that for myself. I didn't plot this path for myself. I had folks who planted seeds and helped me through the journey.
0: So you've talked a lot and you've mentioned several times this idea of having a village, whether it was when you were growing up in Surrey, the village that you have now that still exists right from your home county, as well as individuals that you picked up along the way. Um, and I have this firm belief that every experience that we have in life is there to prepare us for something that's coming in the future. And you never know what it is, particularly those that are the most challenging. Um, and you may have said this, you've probably heard me say this, and I'll say, I know that guys prepare me for something. I don't know what it is, but something must be coming. Um, so talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what are those things that you learned growing up in Surrey County, this country girl um, with this villa Um, with this village like that you learned then that you use that as you're managing teams and being a leader. What, what are those things that kind of transfer for you?
1: When I look back on how I was raised in my community and the lessons I learned, you know, from my family and then this large family, it really comes down to, to whom much is given, much is required. Okay. And I realized, particularly as I continue in my career and continue to grow into leadership, how I'm at this place where um, I know this is not about me. Mm -hmm. This is about what I can do with the position that I have to have influence and impact and to help others. Um, I'm so grateful that the industry found me And I've had so many wonderful opportunities, and I really do enjoy what I do, that I want to make sure that I support who don't have the exposure to this industry um, to see that there are opportunities here and bring the industry to them and to help them grow um, and to thrive. And recently, I had a chance to study at Harvard Business, part of a um, fellowship program. And there was a professor who said to us as leaders, I encourage you to wake up each day, thinking about what you can do today to honor someone else's dream. And that just blew me away because I had been thinking a lot, you hear a lot about servant leadership and I have been starting to think about what does that mean particularly because of this principle of growing up of to whom much is given, much is required. And when he said that, I was able to connect that back to my upbringing and realize that's the kind of leader that I want to be. I wanna be the type of leader who understands that this is an incredible responsibility and a privilege that I have um, to lead and I want to figure out what I do each day to help honor someone else's dream in the way that my dreams have.
0: That's actually a really, that's a big nugget. I love this, honor someone else's dream, that as a leader, you're to honor someone else's dream. Um, that's that's a big one. You know, are we, uh, a theme that seems to kind of be consistent among a lot of leaders is this idea of servant leadership. Um and how we do that. And so I'm going to pivot a little bit. Um, you know, this summer, you were on a panel about race and equity in the energy business um, for Abe. And, and as I had an opportunity to kind of re-listen to that conversation, one of the things that you said um, was that, in, in this kind of moment over the summer, as we really, as organizations started thinking about and and talking about race in our organizations, you made a choice, um, to really reveal your feelings about kind of what it was to be a black woman, um, in this space and time. Do you remember that?
1: Gosh, I certainly remember that. You do. Absolutely.
0: So I want you to talk a little bit more about what you mean and how you were able to do that. What did that look like? And if you've seen um, any of the impacts from that and, and not that I would expect that, expect you to. So, but I'm just curious as to how, how that has kind of transpired for you over the last several
1: months. When it really came down to was I realized that I remember being early in my career wearing the mask and not wanting to you know rock the boat and reveal who I was and bring in my whole self um because I did not want to jeopardize this good job that my grandparents always talk about you know don't you go in you put your head down you do the work and You know, you keep that good job of yours. And I realized that I'm now in a position where I'm comfortable with my voice and using it, but there's still others who aren't. And if I can't, in the position that I have, speak truth and use voice so that others may have a voice through me, then I'm not honoring the responsibility I have as a leader, particularly as a black woman leader. And it again came back to the notion of too much is given, much is required. I had no choice, particularly in this moment, because if I didn't do it now, when would I? And on top of it, now folks seem to be ready to listen. Mm. And There was no way I could let this time pass and not do what I can do to open up myself um, to share my own personal experiences, but also to help give voice to others. And what I should have appreciated but didn't appreciate was just how much that would do for others. I got so many messages from employees, not just Black employees, not just women, Mm -hmm. um, but also from white employees, um, from men, from my colleagues who, you know, thanked me for sharing. And what it's done also, particularly with my colleagues, um, I've been able to have conversations um, where we are able to be transparent with each other and, um, you know, have this type of dialogue that I don't think would have happened if I hadn't opened up. And so it's been um, a tough roller coaster of a journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, was always told, you know, there's no crying at work. Folks have seen me cry on a video call. And um, I was, you know, a little concerned about it for about five minutes. And I go, you know what, this is, this is me. This is what I'm experiencing right now. And it's okay. Um, and again, if I can't do that at this point, when will I do it?
0: Hmm. So let me ask you, Shannon, do you think we we've talked often about kind of this moment being um, a a moment that is really different in terms of race and and business and our ability to speak openly. But do you think that perhaps this moment could also be just a shift that we're seeing in our organizations beyond the conversation about race um, and giving us the ability to kind of openly be as employees and as colleagues, um, shaping organizations the way that we say we want them to be with people being authentic and vulnerable and bringing your host, you know, all, all of those kinds, that language that we tend to use when we talk about particularly diversity, equity, and inclusion.
1: I heard something this morning during a, uh, during a virtual conversation and we were talking about the diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, the person said... It's time to move beyond promises and shift to performance. And even at our company, we're talking about being the change. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, companies have been talking about diversity and inclusion, not necessarily equity so much, but we've been talking about diversity and then diversity and inclusion for a long time. And I think now we're at this point where there's starting to be this recognition that we have to shift from talk. We have to shift from promises about who we want to be and start actually performing and being the change that we say we want to be. And I think we're at this point where we have now opened the door for our employees who are looking to us to lead to hold us accountable to that. And so that's the shift I think that we're seeing that's happening. And I am hoping that we don't let this opportunity pass us by to start starting to fulfill those promises that we have been making over the last decade or so, and that we're continuing to make.
0: So this summer, um, maybe August time frame or so, maybe September, your company, Southern Company, put out a commercial um, that I even saw here in New Jersey um, mm-hmm. that I thought was incredibly powerful. And, and I don't know if you you know what I'm talking about. And, and oh, I don't remember the specific words, but images of Black women in particular, but Black people, I'm basically saying kind of like, we're tired. enough. This is enough. Um, we've said this before. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, like how how did that make you feel as someone who works for Southern Company, but how is that reflected in your buildings? Or is it reflective of um, how people engage with one, one another professionally? Um, if, if that question makes
1: any sense. So I'll start with how it made me feel. Um, I was incredibly proud of our company because that commercial aired during the PGA tour. Mm-hmm. And when you think out the placement of that commercial yeah. uh, and the exposure that that commercial was getting, it really um, just made me incredibly proud that we were so bold in again saying, um, we're not gonna just talk about this. We're gonna start doing some things. But the first thing it said was, we hear you. Because to me, what it showed was all the frustration that many of us have been feeling again for our lifetime. And it's, it's enough and we're tired and we're exhausted. And so it just brought up all of this real emotion that we've been feeling for a long time. And so I thought it was an incredibly powerful commercial. And um, again, I was just very proud uh, to be a part of a company who would uh, venture out um, in that way. In terms of how it's playing out at our company, um, it's still you know a little bit difficult because we're not gathering in person. And so we're missing some of the, you know, more intimate settings where you can have conversations, but we haven't let that be an excuse. And so we're having a lot of virtual conversations. We're doing town halls with our CEO, um, with employees. um, And we're as a company, having a real focus on what um, our CEO at Gas, um, Kim Green, Um, talks about courageous conversations. Um, And so that's um, what's happening at our company is that we're having conversations in a way that we've never had them before. Again, we talked about diversity and inclusion for a very long time, but the way we're talking about race now, and now we're talking not just what's going on in the world, but what's going on in our own house
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and how... that's playing out within our company. I think that is um, to me, um, I've just been very um, pleased with those conversations that we're we're having. But again, it's not about the talk. It's not just about the conversations. Now we're talking about, again, what are those things that are going on in our company that we need to address? Mm in our own house, because again, if we don't address things and we only talk about it, employees will hold us accountable and they should And we want have to hold ourselves accountable as leaders to make sure that we're honoring what we set out to do when we first started having the conversations and shifting to making sure that we're addressing um, what we're hearing and, and what we see. And again, we can't let the fact that we're not all together in buildings be an excuse. Um, And so we have found ways to uh, engage and reach out to employees and provide leaders with tools to have these conversations um, with their employees. I mean, to get feedback so that our employees also feel like they have a voice um, in this shift To move forward.
0: Okay. So, what would you, because I'm often asked this question, so I'm going to ask you this question. You know, for a lot of leaders um, in our industry, and I would suspect in others, there is a great deal of fear about kind of addressing these issues head on. Um, and understanding that, you know, our organizations are microcosms of our society, which means that there are lots of people who want to move forward and have these conversations, and I suspect there are also people who don't. Um, What advice would you give them as they begin to contemplate um, what their response should be, um, what their responsibility may be, um, and how do they begin to have, as you said, um, Kim Green has described, courageous conversations?
1: So I think the first thing is we don't have a choice. Just because we don't talk about what's going on in the world doesn't mean it's not happening, and it does not mean it's not playing out in our organizations, and it doesn't mean that our employees are bringing those experiences with them every day. So we really don't have a choice. Um, the other thing I think we have to get to a point of and here's where we are at our company, we're not debating if racism exists. It's it's not a debate. Mm -hmm. We've moved past that. Um, And so once you move past that, then you have no choice Mm -hmm. but to have the conversation. And so how do you help those who aren't ready to get there? So there's a little element of grace that has to be given um, to folks to and, you know, to help people understand that, um, you know, it's okay if you're, if you don't know quite, you don't know what quite what to say. We're not asking you to be from a script. I think particularly in energy companies, because you have, you know, we can't engineer our way around this, right? Mm. Um, And we're going to have to step up, again, as leaders and. Have some vulnerability here and create the environment that's a safe place to do that. But then there is going to come to a point where there are going to be some, some folks who just won't get on board, and companies are going to have to figure out what's their plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, some folks may have to exit. You, I mean, you're going to, there's going to be a point. Not everyone's going to follow suit. And so what are we gonna do about that? Um, and what are we willing to do as companies about folks who are not going to accept that we won't tolerate certain behaviors within our organization?
0: And, and, and so along with that, what advice would you give to those, particularly um, African-American employees, black employees who work in organizations that may not be ready to have these conversations. Um, what do you tell them about, you know, if you can offer them advice as to how do they push through this moment or you this mean,
1: time? How African-Americans can push forward?
0: Yeah, for those of us who mm-hmm. may not have an or yeah. who may not work in organizations that are as forward looking as the one that you work for.
1: So that that that's tough because again, um, there has to be this environment that's created for folks to feel comfortable. I think if you're in an organization where um, you don't feel that um, it's a safe place to have those conversations, particularly in this industry, we have such a, I think, a close-knit industry, um, I say reach out to other folks Mm -hmm. and, you know, talk through what you're feeling and what you're experiencing and figuring out how to navigate within your organization. I mean, change does not happen overnight. I mean, again, our company has been on this journey for over a decade or so. But as you pointed out, Paula, there's some companies who haven't even truly begun the journey, and that's difficult. Um, And so I just encourage if you're at a company that is slow to the journey is to reach out to other folks who you know and who you trust uh, to help you figure out how to navigate um, those waters. Uh, But also, uh, I know it's tough now in this COVID-19 environment, um, but you also have to start to think about is this the place for me? Mm -hmm. Is this where I can grow and I can thrive, and again, that's a tough conversation to have with yourself, particularly um, with um, this pandemic environment that we're living in. And so, if you're if you aren't able to make that choice, then lean on other folks to kind of help get you through um, and help you navigate, well, you know, where you are. Yeah.
0: So you you just touched on. I have a couple more questions. A couple of themes that. Um, I want to just explore because you you said you know as you started to kind of really lean in and, and open up yourself um you 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 know there is always a fear of like what rocking rocking the boat as you described it um kevin kevin walker who who we had an opportunity to interview and is a friend talks about um where do you draw the line at what point you know where you make those kind of difficult choices um, what is that for you? Is there is there a was there a point in time where you said you know um, even if it rocks the boat I ha- rocks the boat I have to do this I draw the line here this is where I'm ready to take a risk Have you ever had to experience that or how have you been able to measure that in your um, in your own life as you make those kinds of decisions of when to speak up?
1: I have and it's interesting because it isn't always necessarily some big dramatic event Mm -hmm. there are things that happen every day where you go that just doesn't sit right with me and for me I have to be able to go to bed at night and wake up each morning being good with me And my choices and my decisions, and I don't get this right every day um, by any stretch of the imagination, but I have had those moments where I had to decide if, particularly when it comes to speaking up for other people, if I was in that person's shoes, how would I feel if there was no one to speak up for me? And, I've, and I have felt that way before. And so I have to draw on that to help me realize when I need to speak up and this is where I draw the line. And again, I also rely on my villages. And there are some situations where um, I wasn't quite sure how to navigate and wasn't quite sure how hard of a line I need to draw. Some lines you draw in concrete, some lines you draw in the sand.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I have had to on my safe places to help me navigate that because I think there have been times where I may have for reacted to some things. And so before I do that, I call on those folks um, and say, hey, here's what happened today. I need you to help me sort this. And I need you to help me check my sanity on this and realize is this the battle that I need to be fighting today um, as I think about the larger um, war that is out there. And so having, um, having that kind of a support system helps me through those moments where I feel like I may need to draw the line, or those moments where I question whether I should, and I get the support to help me figure out where that line needs to be drawn. Yeah.
0: That's good. i I'll tell you, Shannon, you've been dropping a lot of nuggets today, so I'm <laughs> letting it sit with me for just a minute, because I, I, I like that. Um, you make it seem effortless. Um, and, and so tell me, is leadership effortless? Is it easy? Um, is it difficult? How, how would you describe it?
1: I used to have a conversation um, with my team about the inconvenience of leadership.
2: Mm.
1: It is not, while it may come to some easily, um, you have to believe that I need to work at it very intentionally every day. And it's not going to always be convenient. It's not going to always be fun. And um, I enjoy it overall, but there are going to be those moments where you have to make decisions or you have to help your members on your team sort through issues or you have you know, events that occur, that are just, again, just frankly tough. And this year to me is the epitome of all of that. Um, And I thank you, you're very kind um, to say that it seems effortless, but um, I have to be very intentional about it every day. Um, And I have to, check myself, and I have others who check me that I can lean on to make sure that, again, I don't get it right every day, but that I am trending toward being as effective as I would like to be and making sure that I'm there for my folks and that I am advocating for them and um, giving them the support that they need to grow and to develop and again, to fulfill their dreams. Um, That's kind the biggest thing for me is not doing this effort in isolation. I can't stress enough um, the whole concept of the village that I have that really has helped me grow as a leader. One, because of their coaching, their mentorship, but also because I get to watch them and how they model leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really uh, what I draw upon as I try to get more effective um, in leadership every day.
0: Thank you for that. I'm going to end um, this discussion of uh, this interview with actually a quote from you. And um, in, in what you have said is I am a relationship building results-oriented leader who strives to continuously grow my character and influence positive change through a spirit of service to others. And I would just say, uh, Shannon Pierce, well done. Um, In this conversation, I know for sure that you are exactly what you say you are. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Paula. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. For all things A, please be sure to visit us on our website at www.aabe.org. And you can follow us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe. You can find this podcast on Spotify or iTunes. Next week, we'll be talking to Robert Wilkinson. He is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We'll be talking about leadership. Hope that you'll be able to join us. Thanks a lot.
2: So one of the first things we talk about is that people, many people blend in their mind that the idea of a position of authority or someone who's senior, who's the head of the team or the head of the department or the head of the company or an elected politician, that they're the leader. You know, the CEO is the leader. Um, and then there's all these people who just sort of work for them. And we absolutely don't think of leadership that way. Leadership is not a position of authority. What is leadership? It, it's exerting influence on other people to bring them along with you to where you wanna go. So the interesting thing about that is we're all exercising leadership all the time. I mean, if you literally can do it 100% by yourself and you don't need anyone else at all to get done what you're trying to do, okay, that's probably not leadership, that's individual sort of work product you're putting out. If you need anyone else, the second you need someone else to join you and go along with you and you you need their cooperation support, now you're leading. That's how we think of it.